I mentioned in an email uh, earlier this week uh, a childhood memory I have. Well, I guess it was probably later in my teens, uh, growing up and seeing a newspaper article come out. And the newspaper article was titled something like, Doctrine is Irrelevant, or Doctrine Doesn't Matter. And the argument that was made in this newspaper article was that let's stop worrying about what we believe and let's just start acting. And I thought, interesting. I think they've got this out of order. You see, what we believe influences how we act. So I titled this series, Do You Believe? If we really believe what we say we believe, it changes who we are. Our doctrine does matter because our doctrine defines who we are. So we're going to do here a month-long mini-series on doctrine and what we believe. And we're going to start out today with talking about Scripture, and then next week we'll get into the doctrine of God himself. And it's just going to be a little bit of an exercise in what I'm going to call practical theology. What is it that we really believe? And what does it mean to practice what we believe? So we're going to start off this morning with a memory verse. And this will be our memory verse for the month. It's Titus 2.1. Let's say it together. Titus 2.1. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Titus 2.1. Sound doctrine. What it is that we believe. I want to thank Andrea Cogley for putting together our slides for us this morning, the, the background for this series. Uh, when I talked with her about it, I told her that doctrine brings to mind like what is the core of the church. And when I think of doctrine, I think what are like the original values of the church, and I think of a stained glass window. And so she came up with this, and I thought it was a, a really cool graphic. What do we believe? We're going to actually look at our doctrine as far as Scripture. So I want to show you, we'll put it up on the slide here, the statement that the Baptist faith and message has about Scripture. The Baptist faith and message says, the Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain at the end of the world, the true center of Christian union and supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. So this is what we believe about the Bible. This is our foundation. This is number one on our doctrinal list. Item number one, the inspiration of Scripture, what it is about the Bible. You might be saying at this point, great, so this is what we believe about Scripture. But how does that affect me? What does this mean for me? That's the whole point of this sermon series, is what does it mean for you? You see, we live in a fallen world, a world that's marked by deception. But we can have confidence because even though we live in a fallen world marked by deception, God has breathed out truth. And that truth 
is efficacious for our thorough equipping. It's efficacious to lead us into righteousness. So what does that mean? We need to both know and apply that truth to our life. Turn to Timothy, sorry, 2 Timothy 3. In your Bibles, 2 Timothy 3. The book of 2 Timothy is a rich letter written by the Apostle Paul, probably the last thing he wrote before he was executed. Tradition has that uh, he was executed under Nero by being beheaded. Probably the last thing he wrote, possibly written within days of his execution. These are really his parting words, his almost last will and testament, if you will. He was facing imminent death. And in the book, he talks a lot about the last days. And you might think, well, what did the last days mean for Paul? When Paul talks about the last days, he means the days, there's a lot of them, from the moment that scripture was completed, that the church was really started. So um, there's a little bit of wiggle room there. But the moment from the church starting until Christ comes again. Long period of time there, right? Almost 2,000 years now. But that's the last days for Paul. And Paul talks about the last days. And he says that there's going to be all sorts of problems in the last days. There's going to be a period in, in this time between the apostles and the coming of Christ when Christians are going to need to be vigilant. And Paul talks a lot about vigilance. Be careful. Be vigilant. And so we're going to be in 2 Timothy 3, and we're going to look at verses 10 through 17 to get a picture of what God means when he says, be vigilant. Now, I read from you from our doctrinal statement earlier. Our doctrinal statement is not scripture. It's important. It's not scripture. We're going to read from scripture now. We haven't done this in a while, but because of the significance of this, let's all stand in honor of reading scripture today. We're going to read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. So follow along with me as I read. It says, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know that from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You may be seated. In this passage, the first thing that I see identified is the problem. The problem is that we live in a fallen world that is marked by deception and the lack of truth. Verses 10 through 13 tell us our world is marked by deception and the lack of truth. 
the Apostle Paul begins by pointing out some aspects of his life. He tells us that the characteristics of a Christ follower, the characteristics that he showed, faith, patience, love, endurance, those characteristics are at odds with the fallen world. The Apostle Paul is arguing that the things that we see in Christ followers are at odds with our fallen world. Timothy, to whom the letter is written, knew the Apostle Paul. He had seen the Apostle Paul. He had worked with the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul says, you know what you saw in me. You saw my life. You saw what I did. You knew the teaching. By the teaching, Paul probably means the gospel itself, the message of salvation, the truth that we are all born sinners. And it's all downhill from there. Until the moment when we recognize that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. Nothing we could do can earn salvation. It's only because of Jesus' death on the cross. That's the teaching that the Apostle Paul says, you know my teaching. You've seen my way of life, Christ-like conduct. Timothy had seen how Paul had lived. And the Apostle Paul wanted Timothy to know, you have seen my Christ-like conduct. You've seen the purpose to which I live, my commitment to Christ. That no matter what happens, I am fully, completely committed to Christ. Paul says, you've seen my faith, my unwavering commitment to Christ. My patience. Think through the book of Acts, where we see the Apostle Paul time and time and time being rejected by those whom he is trying to proclaim the gospel. Paul says, you've seen my love. An unconditional, agape love that Paul had shown to all people, no matter who they were, as he preached the gospel to them. And finally, Paul says, you've seen my endurance, that I never quit, I never gave up. Remember, this is at the end of Paul's life. And he tells Timothy, these characteristics, faith, patience, love, endurance, this is what should mark a Christ follower, even though the world is going nuts. The Christ follower shows faith, patience, love, and endurance. And then Paul says, here's where the rubber meets the road, Timothy. You saw me live that way in three cities, Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. I'm not going to have you turn to the book of Acts to, to actually look this up, but in Acts 13 is where the Apostle Paul is in Antioch. And what happens in Antioch is the Apostle Paul is preaching the gospel, telling of Christ, telling of his death, his resurrection, and that salvation comes by belief in Christ's death and resurrection and complete reliance on Christ's death and resurrection for sins. And the Jews in Antioch throw Paul out of the city. From Antioch, he moves on to Iconium in Acts 14. You think getting thrown out of a city is bad? In Iconium, 
the Jews attempt to stone Paul for his message. Now, just picture the act of stoning. You take somebody, you tie them up, and you begin throwing rocks at the person until they die. That's brutal. That's the sort of thing that Paul had been attempted on his life in Iconium. In Lystra, probably Timothy's hometown, it went even worse. This time it wasn't an attempted stoning, it was a stoning. The Jews took Paul and stoned him until his body went limp and drug him out of the city thinking he was dead and left him for dead. That is the sort of endurance that the Apostle Paul says. The characteristics of a Christ follower are at, are at odds with the world. And Paul wants Timothy to recognize everything that you are as a Christ follower is at odds with a fallen world. In verse 12, the Apostle Paul takes it just a little bit further and tells Timothy, in fact, anyone who follows Christ will face persecution. If you follow Christ, you will face Sorry, face persecution. I want to read you a statement from Hebert, uh, a theologian. He says, persecutions may vary in degree and take different forms in different countries and in different ages. But the basic hostility of the world to the godly man remains unchanged. If you follow Christ, one day you are going to encounter the world, a world that rejected Christ and continues to reject his followers. In verse 13, the Apostle Paul reminds Timothy, the deception of the world breeds more deception. We live in a fallen world, and evil generates evil. Deception generates further deception. People go from bad to worse, and truth is lost. We live in a world where the notion of truth is completely lost. The only truth our world believes in, the only absolute is that there isn't an absolute. Now, there's logical issues there, right? We could deal with those. But we live in a world that rejects truth, that embraces deception. Turn on the news. What you'll discover, no matter which channel you turn on, is that deception breeds deception, and it gets ratings, and so it increases. Okay? This is the world we live in. We need to recognize the situation that we are in as Christ followers. Here's our action step. Recognize the situation that we are in, in Christ, as Christ followers. Recognize that we live in a world that rejects truth, wants nothing to do with truth. I'm going to tell you good news in a minute. Okay? We have truth. There is truth. There is an absolute. But recognize that we live in a world where truth is abandoned. Truth is rejected. This brings us to our solution. The solution is God-breathed truth that is available for our thorough equipping. In the first few verses here, verses 10 through 13, the Apostle Paul gave the bad news, the problem, a world 
that breeds evilness, a world that rejects truth. But here in verses 14 through 17, he also provides the solution. The solution is not your own intellect. The solution is not your own actions. The solution is not somebody else's intellect. The solution is not the media telling you what to do or the government telling you what to do or anybody telling you what to do. The solution is not scientific books that tell you their theories. The solution is God-breathed truth. God-breathed truth that is available to us for our thorough equipping. Paul, in verse 14, tells Timothy, but as for you, continue. Continue. The word for continue here means more than just keep doing something or continue. It means dwell. Dwell in the God-breathed truth. Have you ever had to stay somewhere for a period of time, to continue somewhere for a period of time? Like maybe a hotel room for a couple of days, or you know, maybe you're stuck on an airplane for 12 hours as you fly across the, the ocean. You have to remain in the airplane. It's usually good to remain in airplanes. <laughs> to continue in the airplane. But it's not home, right? Even a nice hotel is not home. You don't dwell in the nice hotel. To dwell is comforting. It means it is your place where you take comfort. It is your place where you know it inside and out. It is the place where you relax. It's the place where you open up. Paul tells Timothy, continue, you have learned. It's interesting, just as, as I think and break this about, um, you become convinced of because you know, do everything that I've taught you. He says, no, continue in what those who you've learned this from. It's not just one person. It was a whole influence on Timothy. It included the Apostle Paul. It probably included his grandmother. It included his mother. It included people pouring into him. The Apostle Paul says, dwell in the truth that you have learned. He opens it up further in verse 15 and connects it with God's word. God's word is truth. The Holy Scriptures, the Apostle Paul brings up, continue, dwell in the Holy Scriptures. Jewish parents began teaching their children about Scripture at age five. Heavily teaching their children, really involving them in the knowledge of Scripture. I argue that in, in our world, where we're at in terms of education, don't wait till age five, start earlier. But Jewish parents would start teaching their children Scripture at age five. For Timothy, this would have been the Old Testament. The New Testament is in the process of being written here. But it would have been the Old Testament. We now have the complete word of God that includes the New Testament as well. Look at what verse 15 says. And how from infancy you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Scriptures, continue in them. Why? Because they make you wise for salvation. The whole Old Testament 
in our doctrinal statement, we say all of scripture points to Christ. The whole Old Testament pointed to Jesus Christ. The student of the Old Testament that Timothy would have been would have known there was a holy God of the universe, would have known we are all sinners, would have been prepared that when he heard of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, that this was the solution to sin. God, in the scripture, promised salvation. The holy scriptures make one wise for salvation. Salvation doesn't come just simply by reading the Bible. No, salvation comes through Jesus Christ. In verse 16, we get to one of the most significant aspects of doctrine. Verse 16 tells us that God's word is God-breathed. God's word is God-breathed. The word in Greek is theopneustos. It's a literal conjunction, so bringing together of two words, the word for God, theos, and neustos, spirit, or breath. God's word is God-breathed. I don't want to get too deep into the grammar here, but it's a little bit stronger that doesn't really, we don't translate it quite exactly word for word here. It actually says God's word is the God breathed. The God breathed. God's word is specifically what God breathed out, what God taught. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter 1 so that we can get just a little picture of what this looks like. 2 Peter um, explains this doctrine of inspiration or of God breathing a little bit better. Uh, so 2 Peter 1 verses 20 and 21 tells us, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. It wasn't just people who sat down and wrote down their thoughts. No, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God breathed means God literally spoke through the person, recording God's words for us to read. He spoke through the person. Individuals' personalities come out in Scripture. Um, about two months ago, I finished translating uh, the book of First and Second Peter, just for my own Bible study. And Peter writes really weird Greek. You can tell he was not trained in a Greek school. This was not his primary language. It comes out. God worked through the individual, but it was God at work in the writing. Uh, Norman Geisler says, inspiration is the supernatural operation of the Holy Spirit who through different personalities and literary styles of the chosen human authors invested the very words of the original books of Holy Scripture alone and in their entirety as the very word of God without error in all that they teach or imply, including history and science. And the Bible is therefore the infallible rule and final authority for faith 
and practice of all believers. God spoke through the human authors. Third, we see that God's word thoroughly equips. Paul tells Timothy, the word of God, God-breathed scripture, is useful for teaching. Scripture is the source of our teaching. We need to be in scripture for our teaching. If we are teaching something that's outside of scripture, we are failing. The Bible is our source for our teaching. This is where we get our information. The Bible, scripture, is useful for rebuking. That is identifying errors, personal errors, doctrinal errors. The scripture is our place where we go for identifying errors. It's useful for correcting. Have you ever met somebody that's really good at pointing out errors but never points out solutions? Okay, the Bible doesn't just point out the errors. It provides the solution to the problem. Ultimately, what the Bible does is it trains us in righteousness. It points out our sin. It points out the solution. It offers salvation through Jesus Christ and then guides us to live to be more like Christ, to train in righteousness. So my action step for you, recognize the significance of God's word. This is our treasure. This does everything that we need. It thoroughly equips. I'm going to be challenging you here at the end to engage deeper in your use of scripture this week. Because if we really believe this thoroughly equips, this should be where we're going constantly. Our desire should be in here. Everything we want should be in here. So let me give you my third and final point. I don't know where that's coming from. My third and final point, allow God's word to work. Allow God's word to work. 2 Timothy 3.15 talked about scripture as being useful for salvation. Let's read this one again. 2 Timothy 3.15 says, And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Allow God's word to save. Now, I want to be careful here. I don't mean that scripture is what saves you. No, it's Jesus saves. But if you have never accepted Jesus as your personal savior, if you have never admitted that you're a sinner and put your full, complete trust in Jesus for your salvation, take that step. Study it in God's word. It's right there. If you need help, contact me. Contact one of the deacons. Contact Pastor David. The answers are there. Romans 120 tells us that there is in the world a general knowledge of God. You look at creation and you can't help but see someone had to have made this. But the Bible tells us of salvation, how to have the relationship with that creator. God's word takes us from a general knowledge of God to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as our personal savior. 
allow God's word to stand. Allow God's word to point. We're going to go to several different passages here, but look at Luke. Luke 24, 27. These should all be listed in the bulletin for you as well. Luke 24, 27. After Jesus rose from the dead, he, on the way from Emmaus, talked with his disciples and he told them, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So all the scriptures point to Jesus. Allow them to point to Jesus. I'm, I'm slightly worried that Carl Brown has inserted a trap door. <laughs> Allow the scripture to point to Jesus. Allow God's word to teach. Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verses 97 through 100. It says, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. Allow God's word to teach. It talks about meditating on your law. Study the scripture. It should be part of your day, not just five minutes in the morning. Meditate on it. Why? Because I like verse 99. When you meditate on God's word, you will have more insight than all your teachers. That's interesting. More understanding than your elders. The one who studies God's word grows in a wisdom that's unfathomable. That's the promise given to us in Psalm 119. Allow God's word to encourage you. We'll go to Hebrews for this one. Hebrews 13.5. The writer of Hebrews quoting from Deuteronomy in Hebrews 13.5, uh, the second half, God said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. This is what scripture tells us. It speaks of a God who will never leave us and never forsake us. This should be encouraging. Allow scripture to encourage. But don't just stop at being encouraged. Turn to James 1, verses 20 through 22 through 25 and see what Scripture does here. Scripture convicts. Scripture confronts. Allow the Bible to confront and to convict you. James 1, 22 through 25 do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever intently looks into the perfect law that gives freedom 
and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Looking at scripture is like looking in a mirror. Now, with the exception of teenage boys who have not discovered girls yet, <laughs> when we look in a mirror, we notice things. And then we fix them, hopefully, right? If you notice your hair is out of control, you grab a comb and you fix it. That's how scripture is supposed to be for us. We are supposed to look in scripture and discover, oh, my hair is out of place. I need to fix that before I go on. Looks like I have food stuck in my teeth. Let me work on this. This is what scripture is supposed to be for us. I am worried that too often we look in the mirror of scripture and we see the piece of parsley and we say, huh, wonder how that got there and we move on. <laughs> That's not how we're supposed to use scripture. Scripture is supposed to confront and convict us. Ultimately, Psalm 119, verse 105 should be our theme. You probably have this one memorized. You might. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. Allow God's word to guide. It says it all right there. Your word. God's word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. I want to challenge you this week. Will you engage in God's word this week? Will you engage deeply? I want to tell you about uh, a challenge that Pastor David has issued to staff and to the teens and youth group. We're going to have, a, in the month of October, a Bible reading competition. So uh, the staff will keep track of how much we read our Bibles, and the teens will keep track of how much they read their Bibles. And it's all of the teens against the staff, and if the teens can beat us in the month of October, the teens get a Gaga Bell pit installed. It's going to be a fun challenge. We're going to see how deep we can go into Scripture, how much Scripture we can consume to meditate on it day and night. But I want to issue all of you a challenge. How many days are there in October? 31. How many Proverbs are there? All right. So here's the challenge. Whatever devotions, whatever you're doing already, don't stop doing it. Will you add reading one proverb a day? I guess today you might have to read two because I didn't issue this yesterday. Will you add reading one proverb a day to your devotion time. If your devotion time is zero, you read one proverb a day. If your devotion time is already 15 minutes a day in God's word, add another three or four minutes. Will you take on the challenge of engaging in God's word deeper than you ever have before? Do you believe that this is God's inspired word? God wrote this for each of us, for our thoroughly equipping. Do you believe it? If you do, will you engage in it as if you believe it? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is truth, inspired, given to us for our thorough equipping. 
I pray, Lord, that we would engage deeply in your word. I pray that it would become our source of truth. That we would act on this statement. We believe you inspired the Bible. Help us to act on that. To treat it as efficacious for our thorough equipping. Father, we live in a fallen world, but you have given us truth. I pray that we would apply that truth today. In Jesus' name, amen.